Who can say where the killer roams? When the blood flows, it's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. behind your favorite horror films, lore, gore, and every kill in between. I'm your host, E.L. King, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Mexican crime fantasy horror film with elements of magical realism, Tigers Are Not Afraid, written and directed by Isa Lopez, which premiered at Fantastic Fest on September 24th, 2017. <laughs> Tigres no tienen miedo. 
Today, we're joined by Kate Sanchez, editor-in-chief of But Why Though, and Jessica Scott, a content editor at FilmCred and returning guest to Slay Away. Are you both ready to chat horror with me today? 100%. I'm so excited. I am too. I'm very ready to be here. Well, I like to ask this question just as a general icebreaker. So how did you, Kate, discover your love of horror? Oh, this is always a fun one. And I think it's an especially fun one, given that we're watching a Mexican film today. Um, my culture, literally everything that I grew up with story-wise was made to scare, I don't know if we can cuss, but like every bit of me in every way. Um, so like growing up, like my parents, uh, my my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, they all told us stories of La, uh, La Llorona, Cucuy, like everything, uh, the duendes, the like, my life has been filled with horror. And I, I found I as I started kind of thinking back when people started asking this question, like, Oh, why are you a horror fan? And I know that my favorite horror movie is Scream. And that was one of the first ones I watched with my mom because my mom loves horror. But when I actually dug into it, there's such an oral tradition of scaring your kids and scaring your cousins in my culture that it's just something that it it's in my bones. Like it's in the very fabric of who I am. Um, and that's why I really love Mexican horror. Cause I think a lot of it kind of gets to that point. So yeah, I don't know who I am without horror because like my cultural touchstones are horror. I don't know if that answered the question, but <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally. I love that. <laughs> Jessica, it's been a while since you have been with us. So please tell everybody how you discovered your love of horror. Um, I have loved horror for as long as I can remember. I always gravitated towards ghost stories and spooky things and haunted houses and things like that. Um, the first horror movie I remember watching, I was five and I kind of snuck behind the couch while my parents were watching Poltergeist on TV um, and like hid behind the couch and watched the movie with them. And was just terrified, but I was also entranced. I have always been obsessed with horror since then. Honestly, I, I hate to echo Kate, because but I just I, I don't know who I am without horror. Like I have always been drawn to the spooky and the scary and the terrifying and the darker things like fairy tales, like the movie we're going to talk about, um, the horror in fairy tales. And it's just always been something that fascinated me and spoke to me. Um, so I think I was born a horror fan, but then Poltergeist was like, yeah, you're in the right place. So. I love Poltergeist. We did a Poltergeist episode uh, last season, and that was a lot of fun for me because I definitely grew up with that film. I got to say the same thing. I don't know if I know who I am without horror. And for a long time, I feel like I was not hiding the fact that I was a horror fan, but I didn't really lean into it like I have in the last two years. I feel reborn as a person since really leaning into that side of myself. So it's been great. I, I did want to say too, like, I think that it's one of those things that I really love kind of talking to people who love horror, because I think that there are, there are people you meet that very aesthetically, you know, love horror. Like I have a friend whose entire like living room is like just coughing this, coughing that and get it. <laughs> Me, my office that I'm recording now is decked in pink and white and has like K-pop boy bands and all of this stuff on it. But 
if you started talking he's like oh yeah no this girl loves horror and I feel like a lot of my family has been the same way like my mom my mom is like modern farmhouse like you wouldn't know she watches every horror movie that comes on streaming services that she has like I'm talking I had to review something for Netflix and I didn't get a screener and she had watched it before me because that's just how much she loves it but she's just like this little old Mexican woman who like has like you just wouldn't think of it. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things when you start talking to people is like realizing how much horror is a part of who they are. Um, yeah, I don't know why I said that. I just, I feel very connected to you two right now. <laughs> <laughs> we should really explore films that fit modern farmhouse horror at some point because there's a lot of newer things coming out that are set in like rural areas that sort of explore that as a trope <laughs> and uh that's you just give me some ideas so <laughs> i love that like bonding over horror is such a special thing i'm so glad that you said that kate because like there's just something special about yeah i don't want to be you know woo woo and say the horror community but having that special bond and knowing someone and saying oh that's a horror fan and kind of you know bonding over your favorite scary movies or just what you get out of horror or growing up as a horror kid i just it's there is something really special about that so i love that I couldn't agree more. And with that, I want to ask you both what your role within the horror community is. I know I touched on it very briefly, but please tell everyone all about all of the things that you do within the horror community. So I am the editor-in-chief and co-founder of But Why Though? Uh, we are an entertainment website and community that's focused on uplifting marginalized voices in the entertainment space. So we have criticism on video games, comic books, movies, manga, TV, like everything. And where I fit into that piece is I am a TV and film critic, um, but I also review a lot of horror games. I also review a lot of manga. And there's a lot of horror manga out there that isn't just Jinji Ito. There's a lot of stuff out now that's current. Um, and so I do that. I do criticism. Um, and I have was less involved in horror last year because I got into a critics guild and I got in my head and I was like, I'm going to go watch all of the dramas. And no, I'm not doing that this year. <laughs> uh, so that, that's what I do. I, I run a site uh, and I write. I will say, uh, although right now my feed is just me trying to teach Star unappreciative Star Wars fans that Robert Rodriguez did things before Star Wars and repeatedly tweeting out the titty twister gif um, of the club from From Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> so that's that's what I've been doing. Well, Jessica, tell us about your role within the horror community. Okay, and I will say you're doing the Lord's work, Kate, because I've been watching that conversation happen and I've been baffled by it too, because that spin was cool and very Robert Rodriguez right? and I liked it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm a writer. I um, I have bylines at a bunch of different places. Um, Manor Vellum, uh, Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, uh, at Slay Away. Um, Inola was uh, kind enough to let me do a Sundance review there. Um, and on my own blog, We Who Walk Here. Um, I'm also an editor at FilmCred. We are a publication that um, focuses on emerging writers. Um, we do not focus specifically on horror, but I do kind of jump in and grab a bunch of the horror pitches that I see come in, just because it's such a passion of mine, and I love working with horror writers, up-and-coming horror writers. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm on as many podcasts as I can be on because one of my favorite things is talking horror with cool people and getting to know people and just talking about movies I love. 
And I also do horror cosplay, just, you know, reenacting scenes or images from my favorite horror movies, um, trying to get into characters that way, which is so much fun. So um, I, but at my core, I'd say I'm a writer. I'm a critic. I focus on film and television, um, deep dives into older films that speak to me um, and trying to you know, get eyes on new films that I think people would appreciate and that maybe aren't as well known as they should be, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so writer, podcaster, cosplayer, editor is how I describe myself these days. So I have to ask the question, why do you love this film? Why do you love Tigers Are Not Afraid? What is it about this film that really resonated with you, moved you? Um, I really want to get at the heart of why it's so important to you in particular. Um. I think for me, it 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 hit me because it felt like me, um, which I think is kind of like a weird sentence. And I don't want to distill it to like, it's Mexican and I'm Mexican. Um, that's a part of it, but it's not all of it. So like, um, I grew up in a part of San Antonio that was literally the area that the uh, gang unit was founded in San Antonio. Like that school district was one of the reasons why it started. Um, I grew up in a situation where you slept below the windows. I grew up in a situation where you didn't go out after a certain point because gang members would uh, shoot a gun up in the air. Um, I, I, that's my background. Um, and I never really experienced violence personally. Um, we lived with my grandparents and, and shocker to what a lot of people don't know is gang members actually have a hierarchy and respect old people a lot. Um, so they kept a lot of the mess outside of like our small block because it was a whole bunch of old people. But it was something that I grew up with friends who died from gun violence. I grew up with um, my high school boyfriend getting arrested on our front lawn. And I know this is getting a little deep, but all that is to say is that when you're a teen, when you're young, when you're a kid, you don't know how to contextualize all of those things. Right. And what I loved about tigers are not afraid is it is told in a perspective that is trying to make sense of the violence through a fairy tale, through a story. And that was very much like, when I think back to my childhood, what was being done, right? Like for us, like when it would get dark, my grandma would call mis hijos, mis hijos outside because she was trying to scare us with La Llorona. But what she was really doing is what she was trying to get us inside because you're not supposed to be outside after dark because of literal gunfire. Um, but we didn't know that. So like our folktale that we grew up with, while it was something that was very cultural, it was also something that my grandmother used as a way to keep us safe in our home. And I didn't know that when I was younger. Um, and so for me, the reason I love this movie is because it contextualizes violence and childhood trauma in the context of how children experience it, how they make sense of it, the guilt that they feel. And just how it looks from their perspective. And so, well, I, and, and even as like difficult as I had it, I still did not have it anywhere near as bad as these kids did, but it, it gives me a nice mirror to kind of see my life in. Um, and yeah, that's why I have a very, very like spiritual connection to this movie. And like, 
I I think that this is one of the reasons why I really want people to watch more Mexican horror and like this this movie specifically. I think a lot of the times you talk about Guillermo del Toro, who is a maestro for Isa, but he doesn't make Mexican films. This is a Mexican film about Mexico, about the children in Mexico, and focused on that. And that that's why I love this movie. Jessica, what about you? Why do you love Tigers Are Not Afraid? One of my favorite things is fairy tales. And I love how they explore, you know, either universal childhood fears or very specific childhood fears based on your culture, where you live, when you live. And I like that this is not a stereotypical, you know, out in the woods, a pastoral story. Um, This is a fairy tale that takes place in the city, a fairy tale that is very real for these kids. And I love that approach to the fairy tale aspect. And I'm a huge fan of child actors. I I love because childhood is a horrifying time. And horror is something that, you know, all three of us have said, you know, it was special to us in childhood on. And I think that horror that doesn't shy away from that, but embraces it and explores it and really dives into how kids deal with the horrors of their world and how it reflects reality and what's going on inside of them. I'm really fascinated by that because that feels very close to me in terms of, you know, for one reason or another, if you felt unsafe growing up. And seeing these child actors do such a beautiful job with the material and feel so real and lived in, I just... There's something really, really beautiful. It's obviously a very sad film, but there's something so beautiful about watching these kids make sense of their world through these fairy tales and just try to find a way to keep living, even though they're kind of the ones who have been left behind. So I think it's really beautiful, a really smart and interesting approach to fairy tales. So that's why I'm such a big fan of this movie. It is a very difficult and I want to say heartbreaking film. I definitely cried while watching the film. Um, And there's few horror films that actually do that for me. Um, But when one comes along where it really touches on a range of emotions from things like the the fears of childhood, the real world issues and and the trauma that's going on here and um, things that you can resonate with and that really touch you, I think that's it, it ends up being really beautiful. And this is an extremely beautiful film, even though it can be a very difficult watch. Um, and just getting a little bit more into the film and its backstory, um, it is a dark fairy tale about a gang of five children trying to survive the horrific violence of the cartels and the ghosts created every day by the drug war in Mexico. And uh, the Mexican crime fantasy horror film includes elements of magical realism. It was written and directed, as we said, by Isa Lopez, and it pulls from the Latin American tradition of magical realism and is influenced by Guillermo del Toro and his early work. In particular, um, Isa Lopez's Spanish language film, Tigers Are Not Afraid, uses the lens of fantasy and horror to explore the lives of the children who are left behind by the Mexican drug war. So it's very visceral. Um, it has a very grim realism, uh, but it's also really poignant and cathartic. And it, it uses this um, fantastical lens to to bring everything 
to life and, and to frame it. So above all, it's a reminder of how genre storytelling can really provide a real world social commentary and not just breezy escapism. And I found this really fantastic um, article in The Verge by Carolyn uh, Said, and it's called Tigers Are Not Afraid, puts a pan's labyrinth spin on a poignant Mexican uh, drug war story. And they had stated that fairy tales and horror films often share the same purpose to provide thrills, scares, and fantasies for people living comfortable lives. But for those whose worlds aren't already safe, they, they can take on a whole new meaning. Um, they become a way to process the scariest, most unpredictable aspects of a world that's impossible to control. And that statement really resonated with me personally. And the question that I had for both of you is, um, to say that I have found that horror has always been a way to cope with trauma or face your fears in a safe and controlled environment. And um, that is one of the reasons that I gravitated towards horror at a very young age. And I wanted to get your thoughts on Saeed's statement and um, just that sentiment in general. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've always felt the same thing. For One of the things that I say a lot, and I actually wrote a piece about specifically how Del Toro does this um with empathy like the key to good horror in and and I use good loosely um like horror that is being made for people to process trauma or features that type of cathartic release and experience empathy is the base um like comedy and horror are very similar you have to make your audience feel what that character is feeling you have to make them connect you have to have an empathic thread building the foundation in order to get the scares in order to get everything in order to get the catharsis um for me i think that as i've kind of been in some of the darkest points of my life moving into exploring it with horror in a safe space is exactly what I did um like rape revenge horror movies is one of my favorite genres um sometimes it's done really bad and sometimes it's done really well but in every one that I've seen it gives me the space to experience a type of violence that is hard to process sometimes on your own and sometimes it's easier to do it if you see another character doing it um and so like I would say almost every traumatic experience that I've had in my life I have gone and sought out a horror movie um or a horror comic to kind of understand it better to let myself kind of feel something and <laughs> For some of them, it's seeing a heroine survive and, you know, live and the final girl can be a, a big catharsis in that. And sometimes it's like this movie very particularly, it doesn't necessarily have a quote unquote happy ending, but there's hope in it. And I think that that's something that I need from time to time to kind of punch me in my gut and realize that I'm feeling things like right now I've lost four family members in the span of a little over a month um and i haven't really known how to deal with things and and i'm mexican and death is supposed to be like this thing that like my culture celebrates and i'm okay with and the first when the first two passed away that was okay like i was like okay this is fine i'll make my ofrenda and as 
they kept happening it was like i actually don't think i have this healthy relationship i'm gonna go watch some horror movies about ghosts and family and get through this um but yes that's a very long-winded way to say like i completely agree and i think that as vast as a, as vast a genre as horror is um, I, I don't even know if I could think horror as a genre so much as a medium because there are so many like pieces within it that tell different stories um, that I think there's something for everyone to find a way to process stuff. And I think it's really important. I know I find great solace in exploring my own trauma through horror and the lens of it. And um, it's a big coping mechanism for me personally. So um, I think it's something that a lot of us experience. And Jessica, I wanted to get your take on um, that question and statement as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and I'm with Kate. I think that's a really interesting idea that horror is a medium because it is such a huge umbrella for, you know, there's something for everybody. There's something for people to explore every possible emotion. It's not just you know, jump scare fear and no disrespect to jump scares. I love them. But um, yeah, I, there are so many different things that I have realized about myself through horror. You know, at first I thought, oh, I just like being scared. Um, but especially with this movie, um, this is kind of a soapbox that I get on from time to time. The kids should be allowed to be scared and kids should be allowed to deal with these heavy, dark, frightening emotions because kids know almost as soon as they're born how scary the world is and how hard the world can be and that sometimes really bad things happen to us and we don't know how to deal with them and horror is a way not just for adults to deal with that but for kids as well that's why we've got you know gateway horror or you know perhaps kids who watch things a little younger than they should just to deal with those big emotions that you don't know what to do with you know kate mentioned rape revenge that is something that i go to sometimes like when i need to deal with issues related to that i will watch a rape revenge movie i've also been trying to uh, watch movies related to grief in the wake of my dad's death that movies that give me not to overuse or use an overused phrase but a safe space to deal with those emotions in 90 to 120 minutes and work through a journey with a character that kind of gets me closer to working through my own emotions or just help me understand them better um but yeah just to return to my point about kids again the uh, you don't have to have had trauma as a child to appreciate horror, but I think that's pretty common for a lot of people in the horror community. Like they knew early on how scary or how tough the world can be. And it helps you. First of all, it validates you. It says you're not wrong. There are monsters out there. There are scary things out there. There are unhappy endings out there. You your thoughts are valid. Your feelings are valid. You're not wrong about the world. And that's so powerful in and of itself, just validating people and saying, yeah, it's not always a happy ending. It's not always, you know, the candy and rainbows version of the universe. Things are scary out there. Here's how we can deal with it in a way that respects your emotions and helps you understand them a little bit better. So I would agree with that 100%. I, I think it's important for movies like this to exist, especially with children involved and to show people that, you know, 
kids are capable of understanding these emotions and we should be able to have these conversations and to speak to people who see themselves in those kids. You know, if you as an adult don't realize, oh, I that's what I was feeling at five years old. I just didn't have a name for it. There's so much power in that, in being able to say, oh, that's what that was. That's what I was feeling. That's what that's called. Uh, so I agree 100%. And I, I do really, I do really love what you said. And I think that that's something that's really important because I think there is a tendency to think that children who are in the room hearing things, seeing things just because they don't understand that they don't know, right? Like that they don't feel what their parents are feeling, that they don't hear things like and I think you're completely right that putting more children as horror protagonists is something that is really important to reaching out to people. It's one of the reasons I love all ages, all ages horror and why I think there should be more of it. Like I, I hate it when people rage against the PG 13 horror movie, because I'm like, no, I needed that as like a 12 year old going in. Right. Like I needed to be able to have stuff to watch. Um, but I think you're completely right. And it, I hadn't really thought about it like that so much. Um, Cause for the longest time I thought that I didn't like child actors and it's like, well, no, I just don't like the scripts that they're given. Cause there are so many phenomenal child actors out there. Um, and I'm kind of thinking like what, cause I watched a lot of horror growing up with my mom, but I didn't really watch a lot of children in horror movies. It was all stuff that was like adults and I gravitated to, but it, it wasn't, there weren't kids being there. So I really wonder like what my horror like journey would have looked like if I had gotten to see children like this movie or others kind of exploring these things. The contemporary story opens with text explaining that hundreds of thousands of people have disappeared or been killed since the writing and the directing of the film began in 2006. And the film came out in 2017. So this was a, a very long process but the film juxtaposes two versions of childhood in a struggling mexican city and the first is uh the very reserved estrella played by paulo lara and her peers sit in their school uniforms in a bright classroom and they're working on assignments and they're writing fairy tales and um on the other side of the fence essentially is an orphaned street kid named shine uh, played by uh, Juan Ramon Lopez, and he steals a gun from a drunken gang leader at the beginning of the film and contemplates shooting him in the head, but he can't summon up the courage to do it. So um, it's really interesting, too, how easily one child can become the other very quickly in this film, um, and it's made clear that uh, violence, it actually shuts down Estrella's school, and her teacher tries to comfort her by handing her three pieces of chalk and telling her, that they represent uh, three magical wishes like would get within a fairy tale. So um, at that point, Estrella returns home. She finds her mother gone and um, probably at the hands of the cartel and this new reality begins for her. Um, and I think that's where the horror in the film really starts as well. Yeah, I think that this was this opening and like this start is probably one of my favorite things because growing up like like I said like my grandma like did whatever she could to like hide us from th some things my mom did the same thing and I I have the image of Estrella and her teacher laying on the floor 
hit so hard because it's also one of those realizations that because the line between two childhoods is so thin, it can be crossed at any moment. And if you've grown up in a bad city, in a bad environment, in a bad neighborhood, you know, like, especially as you're an adult and you unpack that stuff, that you can think back and see the moments where that line was transgressed. And I thought that it was so beautifully handled to put the two against each other, but to show where one kind of invades the other. And I think one of the other beautiful things that I that the film does, especially at the start of it, is Estrella is not only pushing against kind of becoming like like Shine, like and being a part of you know, the childhood that Shine has, but she's also pushing back against death. Like at the start, she's deeply afraid of ghosts. She's pushing back and not believing that her mom could be dead. And there is a fear of death that is that permeates the entire first half of the film. And I don't remember exactly where it is, but it changes and she begins to welcome ghosts and she begins to accept them and kind of it's like this crossing over to where okay she's processed like I don't want to say processed it but she's accepted that death is a part of life and well I think a lot of that has to do with her moving out of that liminal space between you know a childhood without violence and a childhood with violence I also think it has to do a lot with the way that Mexicans view death um and specifically how the acceptance of it opens you up to explore new things. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love the the introduction and how you see those stark differences across each other. Uh, well, I just, the world building in this movie is so fantastic. Like it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the way Estrella and uh, her classmates hit the floor, you can tell this is something that has happened a lot. And, you know, especially with, I think, amateur actors and child actors, the way that they conveyed that was so beautiful and so scary and so horrifying. Um, and also uh, when she walks home after classes are suspended, uh, there are some little boys like playing limbo with the police caution tape. And it's just little details and little moments where we just see images of, you know, an abandoned tricycle or, you know, just all these shots of this ghost town that the city has become. It just it's the the narrative is so economical. The storytelling is so smart and just so brilliant and says so much without saying a lot that's another thing that i love about this movie and i just i wanted to call attention to those two moments because it tells you so much right away about this world and what these kids have to put up with and the ways that they kind of um get not desensitized to it but just kind of start dealing with it because they have no other choice i did want to comment on that i like that you said like not desensitized because I think that that's something that people often map on to really traumatic experiences or like kids who come from these types of backgrounds is like oh you're desensitized to violence like I'm not desensitized to violence I just know that in order to survive I cannot break down when I see the violence and so I just wanted to like say thank you for like putting it that way because I think a lot of the times in conversations specifically about what often is like POC neighborhoods um that go through stuff like this it is just like oh they're desensitized to the violence it's like 
we're not. We're just, we have no other option. So thank you. <laughs> well, and in quickly touching on those incredible performances from the young cast, um, none of them had any acting experience prior to this film. <laughs> They're all like fresh young actors and they went to like workshops and classes and stuff that Lopez had put together. And uh, I'm quoting, um, I'm quoting uh, Caroline here from the article that I mentioned above um, who had said that Lopez achieved brilliant performances from the young actors whose grounded naturalism is crucial to keeping the film anchored in its grim reality, even as it shifts into genre territory. So uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Paula, Lara and, Juan Ramon Lopez are both huge standouts and they're effortlessly depicting the shifting power dynamics between uh, Estrella and Shine. So um, uh, in particular, Lopez, or excuse me, Ramon Lopez uh, is remarkable at capturing the vulnerable humanity beneath the tough ex exterior Shine has adopted to survive. And I thought that was just an interesting point to call out because um, the performances from the young cast are really um, extremely moving as well and it's um it's great to see them being given this material that is not um censored for children yeah i completely agree um i it was also one of those where i, I didn't do too much background into them but part of me felt like a lot of it as much as it was acting a lot of it was like well no we know what this is you know like when you see an actor who is like clearly had like a connective experience with what they're going with what their character is doing like a lot of it very much did feel natural and vibrant I don't know if that's like even a good word for the type of like stuff that they went through but like it 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 just feels right no I agree completely like it just I hate to say lived in again but it just it feels lived in and uh, to use another cliche authentic in a way like you can tell when somebody understands the material on a deeper personal level. And that's, uh, you know, unfortunately part of why the kids' performances work so well, because you can see it in their face, you can see it in their eyes. This is, there's kind of a weariness to them that I don't know how well you can fake, not to take anything away from their performances as actors, um, but just kind of that resignation comes through. It like kind of seeps through the whole movie. Estrella is a young girl in a Mexican city who's been, and the city itself has been devastated by the Mexican drug war. As we know, we've talked about that. While working on a fairy tale writing assignment, Estrella's classroom is disrupted by gunfire outside the school. And amid the panic, Estrella's teacher hands her three pieces of chalk and says that she can use it to grant three wishes. So following the incident, class, classes are indefinitely suspended. So she's going home. Um, from school like at this point and it's sort of interesting to be somewhere where school is just indefinitely canceled right um but there is a group of street kids and one of the the orphans on the street um called shine so shine steals a gun and an iphone from kako a henchman of a crime boss named chino so um he uh is actually this like politician named Servando Esparza and Shine points the gun at uh, Kako and um, he like is just drunk and oblivious to the theft but he isn't able to shoot him in the end so at this point we're watching Estrella walk home 
past a dead body on the street and there's a trail of blood from the body that follows Astrea to her house um, where Astrea discovers that her mother is missing and there is she's most likely a victim of the rampant drug cartel related violence from Chino's human trafficking ring the Huascas and growing lonely and desperate for food Astrea wishes for her mother to return uh, she begins experiencing haunting visions of her mother as a ghost imploring Astrea to bring him to us Soon after, Astrea catches Shine looting her house, and she follows Shine back to his hideout and meets fellow orphans Pop, um, I think it's Tusi and Moro. And Shine refuses to feed her or welcome her into his gang, but Astrea stays with the boys anyway. And I really liked that. She kind of stood her ground and was like, well, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm just like you now. Um, and uh, the, the whole group of young actors, again, is just like phenomenal. But um, Kako comes looking for his stolen gun and phone, and the other children escape, but Moro is kidnapped, and Shine gives Astrea the stolen gun and tells her that if she kills Kako, um, he will let her remain in his gang. So Astrea sneaks into Kako's apartment. While aiming the weapon, Astrea makes a wish that she didn't have to kill him, and then she sees that he's actually already dead. So um, Astrea frees Moro and tells Shine that she killed Kako. So later that night, Estrella has another vision of her mother. She warns that, uh, her mother warns that the man who really killed Kako is looking for Estrella, and Estrella must bring the man to her. So Shine, Estrella, Pop, Tusi, and Moro bring the other rescued boys back to their rival gang leader, um, Brayan. So Brayan taunts Shine for having Estrella kill Kako when Shine should have been the one to do it. Estrella later finds Shine crying over the fact that he couldn't kill him. And Shine confesses that he keeps uh, Kako's phone because it contains the only picture of his, uh, his missing mother. Uh, and his family photos were lost when the Huascas set fire to his house. So having heard about Estrella from Brian, Kako's brother Tio calls Kako's phone to threaten the children. I think this for me was where I saw the real power. And, and it wasn't that I didn't trust Issa to tell this story, right? Like I did. But the vulnerability that you see in somebody who one portrays that they are strong in front of everybody and that they are hardened in front of everybody. The fact that Isa continually shows that shine isn't somebody who isn't marked or hurt or in pain over the violence that he's seen. I think it's one of the beautiful moments where continually throughout the film where you see that this is somebody who is a way because he has to be not because he wants to be and that there is a really vulnerable core in it. And I think that vulnerability in all of the children is something that is extremely important as the film grows and moves through the story because Isa never forgets that they're children. She puts them in adult situations, but they are still children throughout it all. And I think that that's one of the things that is so very important because they're not motivated by anything other than things that children would want. And I, I think that that's very special in a narrative because I think most of the time when people show, um, when directors or writers show children experiencing something adult, they they tend to forget the 
the innocence that is still there, even when you have been shaken by violence, it doesn't mean that you're not innocent anymore. You haven't lost it. Somebody took it from you, but it is still like took a piece of it, but it is still there. And I think that that is what allows the fairy tale in the film to grow and really ground these children in a narrative that allows you, especially as an older viewer, to almost feel protective of them in every situation. And we definitely see that playfulness once um, Estrella is more part of the gang and um, they're playing, they're, they're just doing different things that sort of exude that playfulness and, and their childlike innocence that they still have. Um, and then also the way that the fantasy pieces are, are brought into the light, like with the uh, stuffed tiger. And I really loved the different sort of, almost storybook representations in the graffiti all over this the city and the places that they would inhabit or touch. And uh, the way that the fantasy was presented in this film, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And kind of building on what Kate said, you know, when Estrella is writing her fairy tale, her assignment at the very beginning of the movie, she's talking about, uh, a prince who forgot he was a prince. She, the idea of forgetting who you are is a recurring theme. You know, they, we never lose sight of them as children, but they kind of forget that they're children from time to time because they are having to do such adult things and live in such an adult world because they're the only ones left. And I love just weaving in that theme of the fairy tale visually and narratively and kind of echoing that, sometimes we forget who we are but we can remember we can reclaim it we can get it back um and uh, as for the three wishes that carry through the film uh, one of my favorite things about it is that it has the the monkey's paw you know a wish comes true but then something horrible happens as a result and that's you know more fairy tale aspects and it shows that these kids don't have any good choices you know, there are no good choices left to them. There is no, you know, definitive happy ending where this is a way out. This is a way where everything can be sunshine and rainbows and happy and perfect. Um, they only have, you know, the lesser of two evils in terms of what they can do because of everything that has been taken away from them. So I love bringing in that monkey's paw element to say, this is the best that we can do in a bad situation, but we're going to do it anyway because there's a little bit of hope left, but it, everything is kind of rotten at its core with all the the corruption with the police and the politics and the cartels kind of all being wrapped up and being the same thing. Um, so I just, I might be jumping out around a bit, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I just, I love the monkey spot element and how it ties into the fairy tale. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Tigers Are Not Afraid or you have seen it and you may not have seen it is like, or you may not have recognized it, is that there's actually hope throughout the entire film. I, I think that it's a hope that comes in very small doses or it's a hope that somebody who has had to be in these situations recognizes but may look um, desolate to the outside piece. Like I think Isa through every every piece there's there's always a little bit of hope even in the darkness that she shows. Um especially with the recurring theme of the tiger. Um and I I think as we kind of look at their entire journey 
these kids don't lose hope ever they they cry and you know it feels like there's nothing there but they hold on to something um and i think that that's really really important so after um Kako, or excuse me, Tio comes and threatens uh, the children to get the phone back. Um, afterward, the kids decorate soccer balls. Shine tells Estrella more about his mother and asks Estrella if she might use her last wish to remove the burn scars on his face. So Estrella refuses, claiming something bad happens every time she makes a wish. So Tio captures Shine while the other boys stage an imaginary talent show, and Estrella has another haunting vision of her mother along with other murder victims while hiding from Tio before being captured. So um, Moro shoots Tio to save his friends, but Tio shoots and kills Moro at the same time. Um, and the other children escape. And this was a really devastating situation and scene to watch for me. Um, I think Moro is the youngest of the children. Yeah, um, he is. Yeah. He he's the baby. Yeah. Um, and he very much looks it also, and he's the one that is usually holding the tiger. Um, so wondering why recovering the phone is so important to the. I've already forgotten how to pronounce this. Huascas. Yeah, Huascas. <laughs> Huascas. Okay. Important to the Huascas. Shine and Astrea closely examine its contents. They discover um, Kako recorded a video of Chino killing a captive woman. And Astrea has Shine call Chino, who threatens the children. Um, Astrea bargains to turn over the phone if Chino makes the remaining Huascas disappear. So Chino agrees and arranges a meeting. He also reveals that he was the one who actually killed Kako because Kako could not turn over the stolen phone. So in the wake of the revelation that she did not kill him, Shine and the other two boys shun her. And this was a really interesting portion of the film. Um, at this point, haunting visions of dead people chase Astrea, again telling her to bring him to us. And fearful of Chino, Pop uh, and uh, Tusi steal the phone from Shine. They show the footage to two policemen, but the officers refuse to act when they recognize the murderer as Chino. And Shine takes back the phone and notices that the bracelet worn by the murdered woman in the video is identical to the bracelet worn by Estrella's mother in a photo he had found earlier. So this is where we realize that the woman in the in the video is actually Estrella's mother. So Chino is terrible. He's awful. Um, but this is the first time I saw Teno Huerta in something. And Teno Huerta is uh, a Mexican indigenous actor um, who's done like a lot of stuff now. Uh, he was in the Forever Purge and um, Madres last year. Um, and I wanted to point out like just how like interesting it is to see children I don't want to say stand up, but like push back against somebody who very clearly is in control of everything. Um, and I think that that's one of the pieces for me that really hits on the resiliency and almost like there is a type of resiliency as a child that I don't think you necessarily always have when you're an adult. Um, and I think that this is something that like you can explore with adults, like you could have casted adults in these roles, whatever. But I think childhood 
is just something that remains hopeful. And you're not really second guessing when you confront somebody who is extremely terrible. You know, I don't really know how to get 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 at what I'm feeling inside, like what I think about this, but like, there's almost there's not this societal push to understand your place at a certain age. And I think that like that has that that is used in these pieces to show these kids pushing their limits and pushing for what they want that I think that I I really appreciate. Yeah. And I, I love that. I, I agree completely that it, there's something different about the hope that you have as a child and the worldview you have as a child that I think a lot of us wish we could hold on to uh, like the, the sense of right and wrong. Like um, when Tuxi and um, Pop go to the police and say, we've got a video of a bad person doing a bad thing. You have to do something about it. And then, you know, the adult viewer is probably not surprised when the cops say, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. And they just leave because they don't want to, they don't want to die. They don't want to lose their jobs. You know, they don't want horrible things to happen to them as a result of trying to uncover this corruption but the kids are so shocked and so angry like this righteous anger that the people who are supposed to do something refuse to do something but there's still so much hope in it one of my favorite images in the film the kids move into this like mansion that's been torched but it's still standing like the foundation is still standing and there are these beautiful goldfish that have the the aquarium broke but the water spilled out into these recesses in the floor yes thank you yeah there are these koi in this pond where you know life goes on they escape their cage and they're still living and thriving in this burnt out abandoned house and it's such a gorgeous metaphor for what these kids are doing you know they don't have their parents to take care of them anymore but they're still living and thriving as best they can in a new situation and i've i've always loved that scene where they happen upon the fish the first time and just start naming them like oh that one's estrella that that's the troublemaker that's morito you know i i just love that the kids see themselves in these fish because that's who they are they are they are seeing the hope in the world and they are making their own way as best they can and that's one of my favorite moments in the film i actually had forgotten about them doing that with the fish when they first come upon them but i just remember the image of the fish and how there's so little water standing water that in in that location and the fact that the fish are thriving there is so astounding and sort of like something you can be in awe of at the same time in terms of how nature can go on <laughs> um i thought that was really interesting but um at this this point in the story um morrow's ghost actually tells Astraea where to find the boys so when they reconnect Astraea insists that they must go to Chino or else he will kill them all after burying Maro in a box dropped into water Astraea Shine Pop and Tuxi go to the meeting with Chino Tio and other henchmen in this abandoned building where Shine turns over the phone but when Shine claims to not know the password Chino crushes the phone with his foot so uh, Chino then executes Tio and the other henchmen, explaining to Estrella that he honored his part of the agreement. Um, so he has killed the rest of the, the cartel, essentially, at this point. And Pop and Tuxi, they run away at this point. 
recognizing the building that she is currently in, Estrella insists on finding her mother, and Shine reveals that he still has uh, Kako's phone because he gave Chino a decoy and then reveals that the woman in the video was her mother. So he advises Estrella that wishes aren't real, but she chalks Shine's cheek um, and um, like she puts chalk on his, his, his cheek from where the burns were that he wanted her to get rid of before she makes this final wish that his scars would disappear. And at that point, Chino suddenly appears and shoots Shine through the head and um, having figured out his deception with the phone. And this, this, I think I, I think I cried when that happened because it was like, I think I had a feeling it would happen that there would be more children scathed throughout this ordeal, but um, it was really shocking and I wasn't expecting it in, in the moment. But um, at this point, Estrella flees with while uh, Chino chases after her and Morrow's tiger doll leads her into a shaft and she falls into a room containing just tons of bags of dead bodies, including her mother's body. And Estrella tearfully connects with the vision of her mother when her mother's bloody body briefly reanimates and transfers her bracelet to Estrella. And at this point, Estrella uses Kako's phone to lure Chino into the room and trap him inside. And the ghosts of his victims are heard killing him from behind the door when uh, she leaves. So at this point, Estrella encounters Shine's ghost. And after a brief farewell, Shine enters the, the body pit room and sets it on fire. And on her way out of the building and into this sort of beautiful open field, Estrella encounters a tiger, that, like a real tiger that has escaped from the zoo. And the narrative for her fairy tale sort of continues to close out the film. I think for me, and and I kind of noted it at the at the at the top of this, but there's a really beautiful way that Estrella accepts death throughout the film, um, and you get to understand. And and this is this may be me grasping for straws, but this is also what I've kind of seen in my own experience. It's like when you think about death and ghosts, they're extremely scary, um, but then they start being people that you know. And so you start trusting them and you start being open to them. And I think given the very connective tissue that, that Mexicans, Mexicans view death differently. Um, one of the reasons like remembering the dead is extremely important is because that's the way you keep them living. Um, if you're a religious person, it's the way that you, they stay alive very 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 it 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 goes back to like mesoamerican traditions in keeping people's memory alive through through memory and go watch coco it does a really good job of explaining it <laughs> if you don't understand it but like it's something that is inherent and that we hold on to and i think that the ability to show Estrella becoming comfortable with death and trusting it is something that is one very indicative of America of, of a Mexican understanding of death but it's also she's kind of fulfilled that journey from that kid in the classroom that was protected to the kid that is now in Shine's position um but I think what really hit me hard is the film's closing um the the line that tigers are not afraid um and they become kings of a fucked up land like that hit hard 
because it isn't that you win and everything is a hundred percent fixed, but it's that resiliency where you survive right you 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 go through the gauntlet you keep experiencing the pain but you don't break from it you keep developing pieces of yourself that stave off the fear you you transform almost um and wow and i think that that's probably one of the most important things for the for the film for me is that you see Estrella turn from somebody who is very much affected by the world around her in a way that she's not sure how to cope to somebody who has experienced a lot of death in a very short period of time and in a way is a final girl when you when you when you step back and you look at it but she has she is the tiger in the sense that like she has adapted continually to the fucked up land around her and she is going to conquer that in the only ways that she can, which is just by surviving. And I think that the the ending to this film, while it is extremely heartbreaking, there is also something to the resilience of, of kids in this situation, to the resilience of, in a way, Mexico for continually surviving despite all of this around around itself um it it just hit me really really hard because they could have said and she escaped and became some and like there are just ways that i could have seen this done through an american lens that i think you end up with a very different narrative um that turns around to like conquering in the sense that you've changed something because she hasn't changed anything about the landscape she's changed pieces of herself to be able to to be the king in that fucked up landscape. And I think that that's something that is extremely important. And I think that that's something that is extremely necessary when you're a kid going through this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a really great summation, especially I knew there was a final quote from the film that I was not remembering off the top of my head. And I realized I had not written it down. So I'm so glad that you brought it to the table. Um, But usually I talk about body count. Now, in this case, I'm talking more about the impact in the actual body count in this real situation, because more than 61 thousand people have vanished since 1964 due to the mexican drug war and that was the reported number from 2021 so it's probably a lot larger now and in the film in terms of character deaths we're we're aware of uh, the deaths of at least eight individuals and there's obviously several others and and the people in that room at the end they they really represent that 61,000 plus in terms of who has just vanished they're they're their um, silhouettes and body bags and we don't know their identities or who they are and um, that I think is something that should affect you (laughs) if you're watching this film and just that the real gravity of that situation I did want to yeah I did want to comment on that too I think that like having those numbers in the forefront of your mind like when you watch this and kind of when you see it um, is really important to understanding a narco film or a cartel film can be done. Like I'm not against them. 
um, with this movie, um, or the original Mexican mispala that came out from Mexico. There are ways to look at the landscape that is very real, very violent, very traumatic, um, and a crisis without sensationalizing it. And I think a lot of what we see in American cinema is they take the narco genre and they move it into something that is um, highly exploitive, but not in the way that exploitation film is. It's exploitive in the way that we're going to take the bits and pieces that work well, like action, and we're going to distill it. And we're not going to actually focus on the individuals that are harmed. We're going to focus on the big bombastic elements, which are like the drug, the drug trafficking and the fighting. And what I love about seeing cartel films, because this is a nautical film, that that's that is what this is. Um, when you see it told from the lens that is somebody there, it is shifted. The perspective is shifted. Um, you see Chino, you see Gako, you see you see the different elements that are the cartel, but then you see the perseverance and the resilience of the people on the other side of that. And so, like, if you're listening to this and you did not think of this as a nautical film before, I want you to redefine what you think cartel film is and narco as a genre is because this is what it should be. This is what we should think of when we think about narco films because there's nothing inherently wrong with them. It's how we handle them. Um, So I just wanted to say that like coming off of like that very important statistic, um, as we said earlier, like we use horror, we use film in general to cope with life and understand things and cope with trauma. I think it's very important for us to understand how the natural subgenre has been co-opted in ways um, through American media to represent it in a very different light. Yeah, and I one of the things about this movie that I love the most is it's so easy when we see a statistic like that, like after a certain number, like what, what I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like 10 deaths is a tragedy, a hundred thousand deaths is a statistic. Like it's so easy for your brain to shut off when you see a huge number like that and not think about the individual faces, the family members, the friends, the loved ones who are gone, dead, missing. This, this is such an intimate movie with such a small cast and it brings it down to such a small scale that you feel every single one of those statistics in a way that you don't as Kate said if a big action movie where you're just like oh yay explosions go boom you know it actually brings it to a human level where you're understanding understanding the toll that it takes on people in these neighborhoods at the beginning when Estrella is uh, going back to her house before she realizes her mother or when she realizes her mother's gone she sees some of her neighbors moving out and she just kind of sadly waves to one of the little girls in the back of the truck you know people being pushed out of neighborhoods people disappearing it makes it so human in a way that you know as kate said a lot of american versions of this genre don't it that they take away the human element and this makes it intimate and makes you look at the way that actual people are affected and the horrors that people actually face instead of just making it a statistic that makes your brain shut off um well, with that, usually we go into some trivia about the film. There isn't a lot on offer for this particular film. Um, but I will say these these uh, two things that I thought were interesting in the fact that the film itself was shot in chronological order, which is very 
not typical, but um, the child actors weren't shown scripts and it was done to elicit um, really authentic reactions from them in terms of what was going on around them. And I thought that was really great. And I think just the whole setup um, that Issa provided to them so that um, these performances could feel so authentic um, was really great throughout. It definitely shows. It comes across throughout the whole film. I think, I don't know if this is necessarily trivia, but um, I said earlier that like Guillermo del Toro doesn't make Mexican films. I know that that's probably going to get some people mad, but it's the truth. The man makes films about Spain um, and other stuff. Um, although like if you listen to him talk, um, his Mexican identity is extremely important and it's something that I've really gravitated to. It's why he's my favorite director of all time. Um, but in this trivia section, I do want to note that Guillermo del Toro used every bit of his act like his academy weight and like like belovedness in 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 film and in horror to get this movie made to get this movie picked not necessarily made but get it picked up um he i think at tiff he led a lot of the introductory a lot of the screenings um so he really used his star power to come in and help isa get her her whole body in the door, really. Um, and that's something that I really appreciate because I think Guillermo del Toro, as much as I love him, he's one of those directors that can be hit or miss. Like he doesn't give a lot of Mexican, any Mexican actors really roles in his films. Um, but he did a lot of the work here in making sure that Tigers got picked up by other folks. So I thought that was a good call out for me. This is a film that was first introduced to me by a few other people almost a, a year ago and I had put it on my watch list and I'm like I'm gonna get to it <laughs> and then luckily Kate picked it um so that we could talk about it today and I could finally get around to watching it because um it's something that could probably easily fall to the bottom of your watch list if you don't know a lot about it uh but you sh it shouldn't you should put it at the top of your watch list <laughs> that's what i'm saying right now um and it's available to watch on shutter so i hope that everyone goes and watches it if you haven't seen it already hopefully you've already watched the film but um i also saw that uh, stephen king had said that the film was really terrific um it was tough and touching and two minutes in he said it, he was under its spell um so i thought that was kind of cool to get um high praise from king and del toro um, but, uh, going into just the, the film's reception, um, I like to comment on some of the critical response. Um, I didn't look up too many additional reviews, but, um, the film does hold an approval rating of 97% on Rotten Tomatoes and the critical consensus reads that Tigers Are Not Afraid draws on childhood trauma for a story that deftly blends magical fantasy and hard-hitting realism, leaving a lingering impact. And I definitely felt that. I, th I felt that I could agree with that. Um, but this is the big moment where we get bloody knife ratings from both of you and, and hear about why you rated the film the way that you did. So for me, um, I rated it with a four and I did not write a lot about why <laughs> I gave it a four. Um, I think that it has some imperfections, but overall it's an absolutely fantastic film. Um, and it's all of the elements are really beautifully weaved together um, in the narrative. So for me, it was a four out of five for Bloody Knives and Stars on Letterboxd. 
Um, I won't go. I think I've gone into enough as to why I love this film. Um, it's a five for me. Um, I gave it a 10 out of 10 in my uh, my review on the site and my Rotten Tomatoes entry. Um, so I'm happy to know that it's 97%. I'm going to practice self-care and not go look up the the Rotten review. Um, but yeah, for me, ultimately, it's a five out of five because I think that there's a very there's an importance to there, there's an importance and a nuance that you have to have and a skill that you have to have to tell a story through children and make it resonate with adults. I think that there's also a skill that you have to have in trusting your young actors to handle really meaty content. Um, and I think that all of that is what really makes this film shine. Um, and I specifically think the ability to use, um, as Jessica pointed out, the monkey's paw uh, trope that we're all very familiar with and in a, in a similar but different way um, is something that's really masterful. And I think that the ability to create a new fairy tale um within this and allow the film to be its own fairy tale um without resting or using others is something that is extremely strong and that I want to see more people do um the originality and the inventiveness in the fairy tale storytelling throughout the film is one of the things that seals the deal for me even if I step back and take like my own personal I don't want to call it bias but like the deep connection that I have with it when you just look at it in its parts the uniqueness is something that I can't understate yeah, and I, I ended up splitting the difference. I gave this a four and a half out of five. Um, like I said, the unique take on a fairy tale and creating its own mythology as it goes is so beautiful. The storytelling is so smart, so economical. You know, I, Issa Lopez does so much with so little, just the way she juxtaposes images and the performances she gets out of her child actors, they're so beautiful. It's, I, you know, I, I keep going back to just how smart the storytelling is, but I just, I'm really in awe of, this is, I want to say like an 83 minute movie. It's a very short movie, but it feels much longer in a good way because it, it gives moments time to breathe. It gives the story time to breathe. You feel immersed in this world. You feel immersed in these children's lives. And it just, it feels so much bigger than a sub 90 minute movie. Like it feels like an epic the way that the best fairy tales do, I think. Um, so, you know, I absolutely love this movie and I, I can't say enough about just how, how beautifully shot it is and how beautifully written it is. I thought what was interesting too, is like when I look at this film, nothing is done just for shock value. It's very, every element has its place in the narrative throughout the entire film. And so those moments that are shocking are very well placed. Um, there's no real jump scare, even though, like you said, jump scares are great. We love jump scares, but it's um, the the horror and the terror comes both from the uh, real impact that this actual situation has, and also some of these other horror elements that are sprinkled throughout the film. Um, and I liked that a lot. I think 
the one comment I want to make is I think international film scares some people um, because they may not think that they can understand specific cultural references. And I think that the, the cultural nuances that come in horror is extremely important when it comes to building empathy because horror, to tell a story, um, it pulls from the culture that it comes out of. Um, and I think that's why a lot of horror remakes don't work or um, remakes from media from other countries. But what I think, what I want people to do um, for Tigers Are Not Afraid if they haven't watched it or for any other international movie is to understand that the human experience, while it may look different, a lot of these films will still hit you. It may not hit you the way that it may hit like me, right? Because I'm, you know, I'm I'm Mexican American, but I have a specific background that kind of fits to what the story has. But it can still hit you. It doesn't have to hit you in the same way as it hit me, but it can still do that. And so I, I think what we see a lot of um, less so in the horror community, thankfully, but with film is that people don't want to kind of step out of their box. They may not feel like it's for them because it's from a different country. But I kind of want to challenge you to pick at least one international film a month to watch um, because the wealth of stories and experiences that are there, um, it's a shame if you don't. Um, so yeah, that, that's my last comment because I, I, I know that subtitles can be a big thing to jump over for some folks, but there's a lot there and I just want more people to be aware that Americans don't got a monopoly on stuff. There's a lot of good content out there. 100%. I think that's the perfect way to end it. Like, yeah, don't fear subtitles. Don't fear international film. There's so much brilliance waiting out there for you. Well, thank you both so much for joining me to talk about Tigers Are Not Afraid today. I really appreciate it. And we definitely hope to have you back.